Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books and Math, a channel of the New Books Network. Our guest today is Milo Beckman, author of Math Without Numbers. One of the questions I am often asked is exactly what do mathematicians do? The short answer is that they look at different mathematical structures, try to deduce their properties, and think about how they might apply to the real world. Math Without Numbers does a wonderful job of explaining what mathematical structures are, and does so in a fashion that even readers who are uncomfortable with the process of doing mathematics can appreciate and enjoy. There are courses in music and art appreciation, and if there ever are courses in math appreciation, this book would certainly be at or near the top of the reading list. Milo, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Jim. I'm really happy to be here. Happy to have you. Milo, what motivated you to write this book? It's a good question. So, Really, it started because I wanted to reclaim the word math. Uh, I think people have this preconceived notion of what math is from what they learn in school. We all have this sort of same pretty standard math curriculum we learn in school, and it's sort of all about computation. You've got your multiplication tables, long division, maybe like algebra, geometry, some of that stuff. But it's basically sort of teaching you how to be uh, like a less efficient calculator or something to that effect. And there is some fun stuff thrown in there, but I really just want people to know First off, like, you know, even if you don't read this book, that that is really not what math is about, or at least that's not what mathematicians study. It's not what we care about. It's not what we find interesting. And the math that that sort of professional mathematicians, quote unquote, pure mathematicians do is more about the concepts. It's more about these things like dimensions and infinity and symmetries and structures and and logic and just sort of thinking creatively about these abstract ideas and trying to sort of make sense of the world we live in through that lens. So I had this situation where growing up, I was really into math and people would always ask me like, oh, what's a, you know, what's a million and five times 86 or whatever. And I'm just like, I don't, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know how to answer that question. And so I, you know, people were always like, well, then what do you, what do you do? What is math? And I never had a good answer. I always wished there was like some, some fun little illustrated book that I could recommend them that would, you know, set them straight. They would read it. And even if they don't want to go into math, they would be like, oh, okay, that makes sense. I see what, I see what you're all about now. Uh, but, but no one was making that book. And so I was frustrated and I decided I just wanted to make it myself. So that's kind of where this came from. Why is mathematical proof so important? Mathematical proof is a way of deciding what's true, a way of understanding what's true um, that I think most people are not really given access to in this world. And I think that's that's really a shame. That's sort of not um, part of what we're just like taught to understand about the world. And what's really nice about mathematical proof is it's kind of this like magic magical trick where you just sort of take one piece of information and like twist it around in your head in a particular way and turn it into this other new piece of information Um, and somehow if you just like follow the sort of patterns correctly, if you do the steps right, the thing at the end, uh, is always true as long as the thing at the beginning was true. And that's, that's really kind of fascinating and magical to me. It's sort of a different kind of understanding than say science or like empirical research and data where you look at the world around you and you use that to reach conclusions. It's kind of this other level of understanding where you take something you already know uh, and you you sort of flip it around and use a mathematical proof, a mathematical argument to say, well, if this is true, then this absolutely must be true. There's no possible way this second thing uh, could be could not be true. It's kind of taking logic to the extreme, just basic logic and using it to understand new and interesting things about the world. You may not figure out just sort of by looking at it. Uh, you know, you state that fundamentalist mathematicians believe that everything can be understood in terms of mathematics. What's your mm. position on this? What's my position? Well, I find it. I find I get the least grief if I remain agnostic on some of these points. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I would. I will say that I definitely used to be a fundamentalist mathematician, and what some people would call a Platonist, sort of like a hardcore Platonist. 
Um, I used to believe when I was younger that sort of what mathematical objects are and sort of what math describes is a, an actually real universe and kind of that's all that exists. And sort of whatever exists in our universe is like one little corner, arbitrary corner of that universe where the rules of physics are this particular way. Um, I still think that's a very useful way of looking at this picture. And when I do math, I do sort of put myself back in those shoes of, of sort of a fundamentalist mathematician. And, you know, that's kind of the, the attitude you have to have doing math is you kind of dive into this alternate universe and you're just like okay a circle is a pure perfectly round circle right it's not a circle made of pixels or atoms or anything like that it's a pure perfect circle and when you live in that world you start thinking kind of like this fundamentalist mathematician so i wanted to give people the ability to think like a mathematician from reading this book without actually having to like roll up their sleeves and do math themselves yeah uh i keep thinking of uh uh, oh boy, the name of the uh, the name of the physicist escapes me, but um, he has a theory of uh, theory of parallel universes. It will come to mm-hmm. me as soon as I as soon as I pause the interview. But one of his one of the ideas of the universe is is that every mathematical object is realizable in some universe. And that's are, is that you're talking about? Is that Max Tegmark? Yes, that's the guy. Yeah, Thank yeah, you yeah, very much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a bunch of sort of many world or many universe theories, and his is sort of the most outlandish. And when I say outlandish, I don't mean that as an insult because I think it very well could be true. No, I understand. Uh, it's the most. Yeah. It's the most extreme. The most position. extreme. Every yeah. mathematical object exists, and this is one of them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I love that theory. Yeah. Okay. And thanks for supplying me with that because when you get to be my age, you just can't right. grab those names as frequently as you would like. For sure. <laughs> okay. Anyway, your book is divided into several sections on what yeah. I would consider the basic branches of mathematics. And the first one we encounter is topology. And the first subject you discuss is shape. The first question you ask is, how many shapes are there? So what makes shapes different? So yeah, so the question, how many shapes are there, is the question I love to start with when I'm uh, talking about this stuff. I've, I've sort of posed that question to people from all different ages and backgrounds. And it's really fun because you can kind of just start by being like, okay, well, you know, circle, triangle, square, star, whatever. You can start naming shapes and it's a really easy way into the question. But what's cool about this question is as you start sort of defining your terms and deciding, okay, what counts as a shape? Or as you said, what makes two shapes the same or different from each other? If you sort of make up these rules or set these rules in place that make the question more precise, you end up with what ends up being like actually a really challenging question. Um, and this is one of the biggest open questions remaining in mathematics and specifically in the area that has to do with shapes and spaces, which is called topology. Um, and the question, you know, the, the formal name for this question is the generalized Poincaré conjecture, which is just a fancy way of saying how many shapes are there? Uh, subject to these rules about what counts as the same shape or the different shape. So in the context of topology, when you're talking about topology, we really only care about broad categories of shapes. So we actually don't care about things like lengths and angles. All we care about is sort of the, the overall like shapeness to the shape. Um, so <laughs> the example that I would like to give is it's sort of like um, if you're holding a necklace in your hand, you can shape that necklace into a circle. You can shape it into a square. You can shape it into sort of any like closed loop shape, right? That has the, and, and that is all considered in topology the same shape. They call it S1. Any sort of closed loop shape like that is the same. So that covers all of those kind of polygons you learn in school, triangle, hexagon, etc. Um, it doesn't cover something like an X, right? An X shape is a completely different shape. It has that intersection in the middle that you can't get rid of and it has those four endpoints on the sides that you can't get rid of. So when you break down shapes into that kind of broad of a categorization where two shapes are considered the same as each other, if you can turn one into the other by sort of stretching and squeezing it in your hands, that gives you the field of math called topology, and it gives you this really interesting question called the generalized Poincaré conjecture, which has never been solved by any mathematician on Earth. Well, how many shapes are there, and what insight into mathematical proof does the answer to this question give us? Right. So when you, so the, the very first version of the question that, I, that we end up going with in the book when we define our terms... The answer ends up just being infinity, uh, and I, I I won't I don't need to walk you through the whole proof of why it's infinity, but it there's a I mean actually I can I can do it right now, uh, you know if you, if you not really necessary they can read the book <laughs> you can yeah, okay fine okay fine I'll, I'll I won't give the spoilers away you can read it in the book but basically it, there's a way of constructing an infinite family of shapes where you just have one shape after the other. 
Um, and you can tell that each shape is different from all the others, even if you're allowed to stretch and squeeze. You may be able to think about this in your head and kind of think of a way you could create a sequence of shapes that you know are all different from each other. But they sort of work in this orderly way where you can always generate the next shape from the last shape. You sort of always know how you're going to get a next shape. And so that's called an infinite family proof or an infinite family argument. And it proves that there are infinitely many shapes if you ask the question in this basic way. And that's the first proof I give in the book because I think it's just a nice sort of informal argument that you can make. And everyone can look at that and understand that at the end they're like, okay, yeah, I'm totally convinced there are infinitely many shapes. And that's kind of the the heart of proof to me is is when you just look at it and you understand it and you're like, okay, I can't, it couldn't possibly be any other way. This is a completely bulletproof argument. Okay, the next thing you come to are manifolds. What is a manifold and what role do they play in topology? Totally. So... Again, manifolds, it sounds like a complicated word, sort of like topology, um, but manifold is just a fancy word for a shape that doesn't have any special points. That's the word I'm using for like intersections or endpoints or anything like that. So the classic example of a manifold would just be a circle. A circle is a manifold because it has no bound, it has no like edge points, right? It doesn't end at any place and it doesn't have any intersections. So a circle counts as a manifold. Um, and you can have manifolds in other dimensions, too. So if you go up one dimension, you end up with a sphere, like the surface of the Earth is a sphere. Uh, and, and that's a manifold, too, because, again, there's sort of there's no like cliff. There's no place where you could stand on the edge of the Earth and lean off and, and look out into the abyss. Right. And so uh, in the context of uh, uh, of a manifold like the sphere, this is why we have like flat earthers, because you know, locally on the sphere, if you stand on a sphere and you're very, very small, if you look around you, it looks just like you're on a plane. And that's going to be true at every single point on the sphere because it's a manifold, because it's sort of the same at every point. It's smooth and same at every point. And there are more manifolds than just a sphere. Even in just the second dimension, there's more manifolds than just a sphere or an infinite flat plane. You can get creative. You can have, for example, a donut shape. Uh, if you have a, a sort of a hollow donut shape that's called a torus, if you imagine that the Earth was shaped like a torus, uh, you'd be able to walk around and it would still kind of look like it's flat from where you're standing if you're small enough. Um, and you would never, even though there's a hole in the donut, you can never really like walk up to the edge of that hole and peer over the edge of the cliff, right? There's no boundary. There's no self-intersection or anything. So a donut or a torus is another example of, uh, of a manifold. Um, what makes manifolds different from each other yeah. or, or from <laughs> non-manifolds? Yeah. So it's the same rule that we used before. One, you consider one manifold to be the same as another if you can turn one into the other by stretching and squeezing without any ripping or gluing. So if we're sticking to that donut example, there's a classic terrible math joke. It's kind of redundant. All math jokes are pretty terrible. But there's a classic <laughs> joke of how do you find it? How do you find the topologist in the cafeteria? And the answer is they're the one who's dipping their coffee cup into their donut. <laughs> and the joke being a coffee cup and a donut are considered the same shape in topology because the coffee cup, like a donut, is sort of a smooth object that just has this one hole in it, the mu- the handle on the mug, right? And everything else to it, you can kind of stretch and squeeze away if you imagine that it's made out of Play-Doh or something. You can sort of press it down and you end up with just a donut shape. So according to a topologist, a coffee cup and a torus I'm sorry, and a donut are, a same, are the same shape. They're both just considered a torus. Um, how far have we gotten in classifying manifolds? So this is very quickly getting into areas of math that I actually don't know that much about. I had to interview a real-life topologist to write the section, this section of the book. Uh, these areas of math get super specialized really quickly. So here's what I can tell you. We know all of the manifolds in dimensions 0, 1, and 2, and the way we classify, by the way, the, the dimension is like the dimension of the material it's made out of. So a sphere is made out of this kind of like a sheet fabric material, right? Like a plane is made out of fa- like a, a flat fabric-y material that's two dimensions. A sphere is very different from a ball, which is a filled-in sphere. That's like a, a, a distinction they like to make. Sphere is two-dimensional because it's just the shell. A ball is three-dimensional because it's the whole filled-in thing. So we finished dimensions 0, 1, and 2, and actually in the book I talk about those. Those ones are pretty simple. They're not that hard to classify. 
And then right away, Dimension 3 ends up being a huge problem. And for about 150 years, this was an open question, not just to classify all the manifolds in three dimensions, but even just the most basic manifold, which is the the hypersphere or the three-sphere, right, to prove that that is the only three-manifold without, the only three-manifold without holes. There's a little bit more to it than that, but that's basically the question that was called the Poincaré conjecture, and this was an open question for about 150 years. It was such a big deal that they put out a million-dollar prize for anyone who could solve this question. The question was finally resolved in 2005, um, and as far as I'm able to tell, we're basically wrapped up on the third dimension. That's what the topologist told me. There's something called, I think it's Thurston's geometrization conjecture, something along those lines. And that basically wrapped up dimension three. Um, the really interesting and fascinating thing to me is that actually dimensions five and up have also basically fallen at this point. I don't think it's quite as uh, solid and classified as the lower dimensions, but there's this technique that you can use in higher dimensions that's called surgery theory, and I don't understand it at all, but what, from what I'm told, surgery theory is basically this set of techniques that you can use only if you have sort of five dimensions of wiggle room. Uh, five dimensions is just sort of more space to maneuver. There's more directions to walk around in. And so you can use these special tools in dimensions five and up. Those have been classified pretty successfully. And the last really sticky one left, weirdly enough, is just dimension four. And it just seems so arbitrary to me that that this dimension should be weirder or more confusing or more difficult than the others. But dimension four is like a totally like a, a no man's land in topology. The topologist I talked to, she actually told me she wanted to study four-dimensional manifolds when she was a PhD student, and her advisor was like, don't go there. <laughs> no, <laughs> no one ever comes back. You'll drive yourself crazy. Well, so she went somewhere else. You know, it's sort of interesting to note that um, there seem to be these preferential numbers with respect to various different objects because yeah, I'm sure you're aware that physicists, for instance, when they're discussing, you know, the possible number of dimensions of the universe, the particular theories, somehow you can't have a seven-dimensional universe, but you can't have a four-dimensional or a ten-dimensional or an eleven-dimensional, so it seems to keep cropping up. Anyway, let's come to the next major topic in the book. Your next major topic is analysis, Mm -hmm. and you start by defining infinity as the entirety of everything and then some. Is there a difference (laughs) between a mathematician's infinity and the infinite? So the a mathematician's infinity is based on sort of the, the intuitive concept of the infinite. And that's true in general in math when you sort of have a mathematical definition. In basically every instance, you know, maybe some people would, would contest this. But in almost every instance, the mathematical concept is rooted in some kind of real world concept or some kind of intuitive human concept that has then been sort of like rigorized and made specific and sort of strapped into this mathematical way of talking and thinking. So when we talk about the infinite in math, yes, we are talking about this kind of like, you know, almost mythological infinite. We're talking about something that is bigger than any finite thing. It's bigger than the universe. It's bigger than anything you could possibly comprehend or imagine, right? And so it does feel a little bit uh, mystical and esoteric or whatever, um, but there is a way to define it rigorously in math. And that, that's what I try to do in this section. To be completely honest, it's not really analysis. I don't really get to analysis until the last part of this section. Um, but talking about infinity and things that are infinitely big and infinitesimally small is really the heart of analysis. It's sort of the building blocks of calculus, which becomes analysis when you keep studying it. Um, so yeah, so the, the definition of infinity is actually, in, math, in mathematical terms, is actually very similar to the definition of any number. When you're defining a number in math, like what is four, right? What is four in the first place? It's clear what four apples are, or, you know, four days, uh, or four drops or something. But four itself, what is that? So four is defined as like the size of a set, of a collection of things. It's sort of the, the amount of, an objects, of objects in a collection of objects. And so similarly, you can define infinity... Uh, the, the, you know, mathematicians, professional mathematicians use more specific terms than just saying infinity, but I like just saying infinity because everyone knows what that means. You define infinity in mathematical terms as the size of an infinite collection of things. If you just have, like, imagine a, a bottomless bag filled with objects, and no matter how many objects you take out, there's still an endless number of objects left. The size of that bag, the quantity of things in that bag is infinity. And so sort of that's how you get into this kind of more rigorous and uh, and, and precise way of talking about the infinite. 
Um, what is the continuum, and why is it bigger than the infinity of one, two, three, etc.? Yeah, so this one I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that I do a much better job of answering this in the book, and I can try to give a very brief answer here. But um, the big spoiler alert, the big thing that that they that one of the first things you learn in a class on set theory is that there are different sizes of infinity, and that's something that's always really blown my mind. Is that this this sort of basic counting infinity that I just described is sort of the the size of an infinite set of an infinite collection of objects. Um, is the smallest infinity there is, and there are more infinities bigger than that. And that's just such a, a confounding, confusing thing to to say off the bat that I spend a lot of time in the book just sort of saying like, okay, let's take a step back. Let's take a deep breath. What's going on here? What does this mean? Let's get an intuitive understanding of what this next infinity, continuous infinity uh, is, or also called the continuum. And so the most basic answer I can give uh, o- o- sort of over audio is that there's there's a difference between discrete and continuous, and that's something that I, I stress in the book. So discrete means things that are separate from each other. Um, it's sort of like like this is a set of discrete sounds, right? Those are all separate sounds; they're all distinct from each other. And this is the, the as opposed to continuous. This is a continuous set of sounds, right? You see how they just kind of blend into each other continuously. And so that's a distinction we use a lot in math, the difference between a discrete thing, like counting numbers, like one, two, three, four, five, bop, 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 those are all discrete. And any discrete collection of objects like that, um, if you go on forever, that's going to give you the sort of original counting infinity, countable infinity, the basic infinity, whereas there's this thing called the continuum or continuous infinity, which is basically like how many points are there on a line, right? Or... How many moments are there in a minute, right? It's sort of it's sort of this more continuous, it all just blends into each other smoothly and seamlessly. And so it's a kind of a deeper, denser infinity than the original discrete infinity. Uh, that's a nice explanation. I especially like the sound thing that you yeah. did. Because <laughs> in, uh, in an audio interview, that was rather difficult, but I thought you got around right, it right. nicely. <laughs> Thanks. Anyway, what is a map? And why are they such useful mathematical and scientific tools? Yeah, so, so I mean, a map in the conventional sense, when you think about a map in, in normal life, is like a visualization that encodes some kind of data, right? So you have like a subway map um, that has a bunch of dots on it, and those dots correspond to subway stations, right? There's a correspondence between objects in this one thing and this visual map and objects in this other thing which is like a city or something and so in the mathematical sense mathematicians love taking some basic concept and just making it way more generalized and abstract so in math a map is just any time you have a correspondence between things over here and things over there Uh, and so for example a calendar would be a form of mathematical map you have um, you know an event on a calendar is represented as a rectangle and so there's kind of like a, a correspondence between rectangles and between real world events. That's another sort of classic map. You could also think of like a heat map. Imagine you have a heat map of, let's say, this table that I'm sitting right next to you, right? Uh, every point on this table, there's continuously many points on this table, and every point has a specific temperature. If you touched a thermometer to any point on this table, you would get a specific reading. How can we encode that in a map? Well, visually, you can sort of color code it if you want to. You can have red is hotter, blue is colder. Um, you can make it a 3D map where higher temperatures are higher up physically and lower temperatures are lower down physically. But in any case, you're, with the map that you're creating is a correspondence between points on the table and temperatures. Um, so mathematically speaking, we can sort of generalize this idea, and you don't have to be talking about any particular real-world scenario. We're just talking about the broad idea of maybe taking any point in a particular space and mapping it onto a temperature or mapping it onto a point in a different space, right? You have this very broad idea that's useful in all sorts of areas of math because as long as you have a, a sort of a certain language in place, as long as you choose what terms and symbols you're using to discuss maps in one case, you can use that same language and tools in all other cases. And it just makes it sort of a convenient language for mathematicians and physicists and applied mathematicians um, to talk about all any kind of correspondence, any kind of mapping. Yeah, you know, I was happy to see the idea of fixed points in your book because that was the last half of my research career. So, oh, really? <laughs> so what is a fixed point and where do they appear in the real world? 
Yeah, I love fixed points. This is one. So the um, this famous theorem, Brower's fixed point theorem. One of the I, ones I was into. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a beautiful theorem. There's a there's a really nice proof of it, which I didn't include in my book, but you can look it up online if you're interested. And basically, what Brower's fixed point theorem says, or here, I'll give you an example of it first. If you stir a cup of tea, and you, no matter how you're stirring it, no matter what kind of like weird contours are happening and weird. Uh, torrents and churning there's always going to be one point in the tea that is staying completely still where if you dropped like a little tea leaf into it it would remain in place maybe it would spin around but it would remain in place and that's really fascinating to me it doesn't seem obvious to me that that would be true you know obviously if you spin it just in a circle then well then the center point will be staying the same but you would think that maybe there's some way to sort of stir things around so that there's no fixed point um but yeah, that, that's not the only fixed point there. There are all kinds of situations where you have some kind of mapping or some kind of motion or something. And just as a mathematical necessity, there is always a fixed point. Um, there's a, a famous one called, actually called the Harry Ball Theorem, which basically says that everyone has a bald spot. It says that if you take a sphere or, you know, as, as in topology, any shape that can be molded into a sphere. So basically just any kind of... Uh, object that doesn't have holes, any kind of 3D object that doesn't have holes and just has one continuous surface around the outside. And if you sort of put hairs on every point and you try to comb down the hairs that they all lie flat on the surface of the sphere, you can't do that all the way around. There's going to be some place where you have like a hair sticking up on end or a cowlick that goes around in a circle. So that's another kind of, you know, an adjacent idea to this fixed point theorem. I always found those really fascinating because they have a direct implication in in reality and and they've been proven not just in three dimensions but in every dimension so if you somehow you know got teleported to the 12th dimension and you were stirring an 11th 11 dimensional cup of tea there would still be a fixed point in in that cup somewhere um you also talk about the hairy donut theorem so i thought that would be a good i thought it'd be a good counterpoint to the hairy billiard ball theorem yeah yeah, so the, the Harry Ball theorem says that every if you if you try to comb the hairs down on a on the surface of a sphere on a sphere, um, you'll always have like a cowlick or a singularity or some kind of pole or a place where it doesn't work. That's not true for every shape. So going back to that donut shape we were talking about earlier, the torus, it is actually p- possible and, and relatively simple to comb down uh, a hairy torus, a hairy donut, and you can imagine just sort of going around clockwise. There's kind of no point where that doesn't work. It's not like the sphere where if you pick. Um, like an east to west direction, you end up with the North Pole and the South Pole. That's not true on a donut because there is no North Pole and South Pole. You can just sort of have everything sweep around in that one direction and you don't run into any problems. Um, you sort of touched on this earlier in the interview, but how does the concept of abstraction enter mathematics? Yeah, so at its heart, when you're talking about pure math or whatever you want to call it, theoretical math, advanced math, abstract math is actually where people use for it. What you're really doing is you're you're sort of coming up with these underlying patterns. It's at, at the end of the day, it's about pattern recognition. That's sort of the, the catchphrase I like to use is just math is about pattern recognition. Um, and you just have all of these different real world scenarios that have the same underlying abstract structure. Um, I give examples of this in, in the book. And again, I'm going to do a better job there than I than I can do here. But, um, you know, when you're talking about, let's say, in geometry, if you're talking about, um, you know, the area of a circle is pi r squared, right? That is sort of an abstraction. What do we mean by a circle? Like a circle like we use in geometry doesn't really exist in the real world. Uh, In the real world, every circle is made out of uh, molecules or atoms. There's sort of like imperfections to it. It's not a perfect circle. Uh, There are irregularities to it. But this basic idea, this abstraction, this concept of a circle, which does not really exist in the real world, right? It's kind of, it's an abstract idea, this idea of a perfect circle can be used and applied in all different kinds of areas. So if you're trying to figure out the amount of water in a circular swimming pool, or if you're trying to figure out uh, whatever, you know, you, you get the idea. You can use the area of a circle in all different kinds of situations. And so by abstracting to this general case, this general case that doesn't really exist in reality, but has sort of this mathematical nature to it, you can then understand all these different real world situations. And so that's kind of the basic idea of abstraction. Um, One area of math that is very abstract is called algebra. Uh, It's different than the algebra that you learn in school. I guess they kind of just ran out of names and started reusing them. (laughs) Um, But in, in abstract algebra, kind of the question is not how many shapes exist, but just how many structures, how many abstract structures exist at all. Like basically what can possibly exist? 
you know, in the most bland abstract sense of just objects and relationships between objects, what kind of structures can exist? And that brings us to a concept called isomorphism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, up to you. What is isomorphism? Isomorphism, yeah. Um, So yeah, so isomorphism is when two things have the exact same abstract structure. Um, The example that I use in the book of this is, again, going to be hard to do without visuals. I I will stress right now, the book is extremely visual. Um, There's illustrations on every single page. I think there's like 200 illustrations total, all by a really fabulous artist, M. Arasso, who I was really happy to work with on this project. Um, So yeah, we draw a bunch of pictures in this chapter to show you all these different things, which hopefully when you look at them visually, you can see, oh yeah, those two things have the same underlying abstract structure to them. But you can imagine, for example, uh, let's say someone comes along and says, okay, I'm looking at something. And again, this sounds very abstract. But you say, I'm looking at something. And what I see is there are five things. And each of those things has a partner thing that goes along with it. So that's a very abstract description, right? What could they possibly be describing? Well, uh, maybe they're looking at two hands, a left and a right hand. So there's the five fingers on the left hand and the partner things are the five fingers on the other hand. Maybe they're looking at five pairs of shoes. Maybe they're looking at five kids riding five bikes. Maybe they're looking at five uh, parents with the five children, right? So there are all of these different situations where you kind of have this these 10 objects that exist in this kind of pairing off where one thing corresponds to the other and there's this symmetry to it. You have like five pairs or you have two sets of five, whatever you want to call it. These all have the same underlying abstract structure to them. And so for a mathematician, they would say these things are all isomorphic. They are iso meaning same, morph meaning shape or form. And so isomorphic just means the same underlying shape or form. You could say, for example, you know, being if you're being a little bit rough and impressionistic about it, you could say that uh, crazy eights is isomorphic to Uno. They're basically they have the same rules. They're just slightly different cards. Um, or you could say that, you know, the Lion King is isomorphic to Hamlet. They're the same basic story. That's a little bit rougher. Those aren't quite isomorphic in the mathematical sense, but that gives you an idea for what we're talking about when we say isomorphic. It just means it has the same abstract pattern, same underlying structure to it. One of the things I'd like to talk about is the fact that algebra, and you mentioned this, algebra, as mathematicians think about it, is not that stuff that you went through in, uh, although it had some of that stuff in it, yeah. but it has mm-hmm. some very different types of objects. And I'd like to discuss a few of those. One of those sure. is the idea of graphs. What are graphs yeah. and what are, could you give a couple of different examples of graphs? Yeah. So when mathematicians say the word graph, they're actually not usually talking about, you know, what you might be thinking, like a a graphing calculator, like y equals x squared, that kind of stuff. It's more like a network is, I think, the the more intuitive word for most people. So like a social network, if you imagine Facebook, um, the structure of Facebook is a graph. So um, every person is represented by a node, like a dot. And then if two people are friends, you draw a line between those two people, which is called an edge. So you have these nodes and you have these edges between the nodes, and that is a graph. So any number of dots, and then you connect whichever dots you want to connect with each other, that creates a graph. And this is a very useful abstract structure for something like Facebook, you know, for like a a social network, but also for all kinds of of different situations um, where you just need to describe linkages between things. I wish I came prepared with some other examples of this. I mean, I can give examples of um, direct. Yeah, I mean, let's okay. Yeah, if you're talking about, if you ever played the the Bacon Number or the the Kevin Bacon Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon yeah. game, that kind of thing, right? That's the classic example. If you just go on IMDb, if you have every actor is a node, and then any connection between any time two actors appear in a movie together, you draw a connection between them, so that creates a graph. Um, and yeah, these are kind of just different data structures. And especially in the computer age, we use these data structures all the time for all different kinds of things. Um, yeah, if you say small world or like everyone's six degrees from each other or whatever, that's also very, that's all graph theory. Okay, next object that people wouldn't think of, and they came up with a good name for it. Um, what are trees and what are some different types of trees? Yeah, so a tree is a graph that doesn't have any loops in it. So it's basically just like, you know, you can think of like a family tree. Um, where you have every person is a node and then like you have like a parent relation where it points down like a parent points to a child. Um, You can construct your whole family tree as a a mathematical object, a family tree, a genealogical tree. That's that's a a type of mathematical object. Um, There are also like search trees. Like if you ever if you're using any search function on a computer, a lot of times they'll they'll sort of like um, branch out any 
like a lot of yeah it's using computer programming a lot different types of trees um but yeah i mean this whole chapter of the book i'm just going through different examples of abstract structures there's graphs there's trees there's what else do i even talk about uh, you got symmetry groups, but we got games. We got symmetry groups. Yeah, there's there's a lot of different ways that you can like categories of abstract objects, and it actually gets super meta because then you can actually say that categories of abstract objects is itself an abstract object, and that leads to category theory. I knew that was this is all stuff up. that it gets, <laughs> it gets very it gets very heady at this point. I tried to read a book on category theory, and I had to reread it a couple times. Um, okay. Anyway, let's come to the next section of the book, which is basically yep. mathematical logic. What is the inference and yep. why do mathematicians study it? Yeah. So this goes back to the proof thing, right? So the, the, the raw idea of proof is just trying to convince someone of something. And mathematicians have tried to take that raw idea and refine it in the same way we refine anything else in math. You know, the same way we take this idea of like something that's round and we refine it into the idea of a pure circle. So in the same way, people try to take this sort of rough idea of let me prove it to you and refine it into there's this rigorous thing called mathematical proof or mathematical logic where you have A and then you turn it into B by using A implies B. Right. That's kind of the the most basic version of inference is you have this one thing and you know that this one thing implies this other thing. So therefore, you know, this other thing. So Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. So so when you're talking about abstract structures like this, it raises the question of can we model logic as an abstract structure itself? Can we have logical systems themselves be thought of as abstract structures? And the answer is, of course, yes. Uh, and that's what people have done. So when you talk, when people talk about axioms or axiom systems, that's basically an attempt to take all of the possible knowledge from one area of math and turn it into this kind of like tree of knowledge where you start with these basic principles and you use them uh, methodically to sort of deduce all of these other principles. And that's a project that worked very well for some things. But as you're probably about to ask me about, uh, <laughs> it led to it led to some conflict and problems later on. Yeah, well, I'm not about to ask you about okay. it, but we're yeah. going to lead into it. <laughs> um, OK, uh there, I, there's a very interesting theorem that has a that has a wonderful mathematical backstory to it, and that's the four color theorem. Uh, See, yeah, we yeah. don't need, you know, you can discuss the idea without having a picture, but it's nice to yeah. have a picture here. But I think the uh, listeners will get it. So, what yeah, is the okay. four color so theorem the in four its color history? Theorem is one of my all time favorite theorems. I found out about this. Someone told me about this theorem when I was like eight or something, and I refused to believe it. I tried to disprove it for like years, even though it had already been <laughs> mathematically proven. Um, but basically, the four color theorem says that if you have any map of let's of countries or just any kind of like regions on paper, like a political map of the world or whatever, uh, and you want to color this map so that no adjacent countries have the same color, right? That would be confusing if you have a red country bordering a red country. So the question is, how many colors would you need? And obviously it depends on the map, but the four color theorem says that there's no map that requires more than four colors. And that is so bizarre to me. And it really seems like you should be able to draw a map where, you know, for example, there are five countries that are all touching each other, but it's not possible. You can draw four countries that are all touching each other, but you can't draw five countries that are all touching each other. And there's really no way to force a fifth color, no matter how hard you try. Um, And I I promise you, I've tried pretty hard. Um, (laughs) But you were only eight years old. (laughs) uh, I've tried since then. Uh, yeah, I filled like notebooks where being like, no, I'm going to find the, I'm going to prove them wrong. I'm going to find the map that, that can't be colored with four colors. And the history of this is actually really interesting. This was proposed back in like the 1800s, I guess, early 1800s. This was proposed as a theorem. That was when people were first starting to draw like political maps of the world. That's when people were starting to like carve up the world into like dis- distinct countries with borders. Um, and this theorem was proposed as a, it was a conjecture because it wasn't proven yet. And it sat there for a while, and then someone came up with this really lovely proof of it. And I've actually seen this proof. It's very nice. And that, that was that. They thought it was settled. They sort of published that proof. It passed peer review, and it was considered the four-color theorem for about 11 years. And then someone found a hole in the proof. They found a flaw. They found one case, one very special case that it was missing. And people tried and tried and tried to patch up this one case to sort of try to prove why this one case would still work with only four colors. And no one could do it. They couldn't do it. And so it went back to being a conjecture. And this is a famous example of a time when something has been considered a a proven theorem where they would have taught this in math classes as undisputable fact. uh, And it actually turned out to not be proven yet. 
Uh, as it turns out now, they have proven it again using computers, and the proof is like a thousand pages long or something insane like that. I have not read this proof. Um, but they're still looking for what's called a hand proof of the four-color theorem, a proof that you can do without computers, just with pen and paper. And so that's still an open question if anyone wants to try to prove that. Um, well, of course, you could do this with pen and paper. It would just, uh, <laughs> it's just that the computer, was, you know, the computer was faster going through all the various different cases. Right. Okay. Right, right. Okay. What constitute foundations as mathematics thinks of them? So that is the big question. <laughs> Mathematicians for a while just kind of did math in the intuitive way that I'm talking about it right now. And that's kind of historically how a lot of math has been done. And then they got to this point, it was really like the late 1800s, where they were like, no, we need more sturdy foundations, right? If we're doing, if we're proving all of these weird things about topological manifolds, and we've got 12 dimensions, and we're talking about infinity and different sizes of infinity, this stuff is all really weird, and we sort of need a better foundation for it. We can't just rely on our human intuition anymore, because we know in a lot of cases human intuition can be wrong. And so this leads into the kind of thing that I was just talking about in the previous question about uh, about how can mathematical proof and logic be sort of formalized into a mathematical structure. And so the goal of many mathematicians in the late 1800s, early 1900s, was to take everything we know about math, every single theorem, every single fact, everything we know about math, and place it into this sort of one tree, uh, this one axiom system where you start with maybe it's four axioms maybe it's six axioms however many you want but you want to be able to prove that every single mathematical theorem every statement in math can be deduced from these original statements and so this was called the foundational project in in math they tried to take all of math and kind of shunt it into this one like you know this giant what you can call like the tree of knowledge of true and false or, or however you want to describe it um and this project actually failed pretty catastrophically. Um, it was one of the big depressing results of math in the 20th century. And this was one of the first things I saw that made me more agnostic, like I mentioned earlier. One of the things that sort of pushed me away from being uh, a mathematical fundamentalist or a Platonist or whatever you want to call it um, is this famous theorem called Gödel's Incompleteness Theorem, which basically proved that the foundational project was impossible. Or at least it couldn't accomplish what they had set out to do, which was to to basically divide everything into true and false, to sort of take all possible, math possible mathematical theorems and use this sort of foundational project to, of axiom systems and formal logic to just break everything, to cleave the world into true and false and have it so that it's objective, not based on intuition, not based on anything other than just rigorous calculations that could be done by a computer. And that is not possible. Yeah, what Goodell showed was that there were things that he called undecidable propositions. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting at the time is he, he manufactured a very artificial undecidable proposition. Right. But there was this wonderful paper that I saw summarized in Scientific American about two or three years ago that there are actually undecidable propositions in physics. Mm. And that just abs I mean it's a very uh I think it was I think it's in Scientific American somewhere around 2017. But and it's it's something that's a very, very weird proposition that you know that you might not think about. But literally, uh, uh, physicists were from about 2000 on were thinking about, can we find undecidable propositions in physics? And they actually found one. And that blew me away because that tells yeah. me that the universe is just, you know, the universe is really more complicated than we'll ever, than it's, we'll ever realize. It's really weird. Yeah. I mean, that, that's one of the things that I find really, I guess, humbling and kind of aesthetically interesting about studying math is you really just sort of, you open this door into what feels like a really vast, empty landscape of just like, wow, I could never begin, you know, not even all of humanity working together could even begin to comprehend so much of this stuff. And yeah, I think Gödel's incompleteness theorem and the concept of undecidable propositions or however you want to classify that in your head, because there are a lot of philosophers who believe a lot of different things about what Gödel said. And uh, I, I think it's important to have that debate and talk about all those different interpretations. But yeah, it basically says that the world is not nearly as neat as we thought it was, not even arithmetic is as neat as we thought it was. You can't even break all the sentences of arithmetic into true and false. And that, that to me is completely bizarre. 
Yeah, it, it's just amazing. And now we're going to get to the last, uh, uh, the last section of your five-section book, which, by the mm-hmm. way, I'm just uh, very happy to recommend that uh, listeners go out and get it because it's really a wonderful introduction to what mathematics is to a mathematician. And so what are automata, and could you give us a couple of examples? They're not those clunky robots. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's basically the way you would think of it as a simulation, right? So, um, when you're playing the Sims, the Sims is a very complicated simulation, um, but it is a simulation and basically it has set rules to it. So you set it up, you set it up however you want to set it up and then you basically set it in motion. Now to be, um, to be considered a mathematical automaton, right? Which is sort of the math word for a simulation. It actually has to have no human interaction no sort of like divine intervention after the initial conditions so it basically be like if you set up a game of the sims and you press play and you didn't do anything else um the the most famous example of an automaton or a cellular automaton in math is called conway's game of life or just the game of life and this is just a game that takes place on an infinite grid of black and white squares sort of cells that are either turned on or off and there's just a very simple set of rules about when a cell turns on and when a cell turns off. But what's interesting about this is that depending on what starting setup you you plug in, right, you can start with, if you just start with like three dots in a row in a line and press play, it creates this nice blinker that moves back and forth in this kind of funny way. But then there are some things you can put in, like you can put in what's called the F pentomino, which is just five blocks in a particular F shape. Um, and when you press play on that, it like explodes out into this really ridiculous like cacophony of different shapes and objects. And if you can watch this online, it's probably better to watch on YouTube than just to see the the still pictures in a book. But it starts to look like something going on in like a petri dish, uh, or you know, it, it just it looks very alive. And people have created these automata that. Uh, are really fascinating and lifelike. There are some continuous automata that like, like smooth life is one of my favorite. You can watch it and it really just, it looks like, it looks like amoebas. It looks like really funny. (laughs) Um, And it sort of gets you thinking, the reason it's called the game of life is it gets you thinking like, well, you know, is the world that we live in nothing more than just a very complicated simulation, nothing more than a very complicated uh, cellular automaton. And and that that's a, a question that I think a lot of people now that we're in the computer age are thinking about very presently because it's very easy for us to see um, realistic looking things simulated by computers, by sort of these mechanical mathematical operations um, but this is a question that has bugged mathematicians for centuries, which is basically like, is the universe essentially like a large computation? Is physics just like one mathematical automaton? automaton? Can never say that word right. Um, you know, you describe a way to construct a model of certain aspects of the universe using mm-hmm. ideas you have introduced in the book. Could you give yep. a brief outline of this for the listeners? Uh, just of modeling in general. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is this is the answer to the the ultimate question, which is why the hell are we talking about any of this, right? Why is mm-hmm. this useful at all? And and something I stress a lot in the book is that mathematicians hate that question. Professional mathematicians, pure mathematicians, are just doing it because it's fun. <laughs> We're just trying to find out how many shapes right there are, right? And so I, I say that over and over again, just to say that. Um, the bizarre thing about math is that it ends up being incredibly useful. I think everyone has some recognition of the fact that math is one of the most applicable subjects ever studied. Um, but what is really fascinating is a lot of times the math came first by like 200 years where people were just studying these abstract, weird objects. And then like 200 years later, physicists were like, hey, we discovered this kind of like black hole thing is curvature of the universe. Have you guys ever like researched this? And they're like, oh, yes, we have hundreds of books on this. Here you go. Um, and <laughs> Nicely so, put. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so so, you know, there's there's the philosophical question of why is that sort of what what some I forget who called this, who used this phrase, but like the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics in the natural in describing the natural world. I think Where that was that Leo Zillard. I'm not sure, but yeah. someone around that area. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, it's, it's a great question. Why is it so useful? Um, but, but that's sort of a separate philosophical question. The, and, and just the, the concept, the, uh, sorry, the way that um, math is useful in the real world, sort of the connections between the mathematical universe and the real universe are all summarized by this concept of modeling. And this is a word that people use a lot. And I think people have some intuitive idea of what it means, but I talk a little bit more about this in the book. A model is just sort of an abstract model, an abstract mathematical structure that describes a real world situation. My favorite example to use of this is music theory 
which is, I think, not the standard example, but it, it is a really nice example of a model of a real world thing that sort of simplifies it and puts some rules on it. So when you're actually listening to music, when there's sort of like just vibrations coming into your ear and hitting your eardrum, it's a very complicated thing. If you really try to sit down and process every single aspect of every frequency that's coming into your ear and stuff like that, you wouldn't be able to do it. It would be overly complicated. And so instead what you do is you take this simplified model of things. You sort of strip things down to their bare abstract minimum and you end up with these basic concepts like what is a note? What is a chord? Um, right? And what is a tempo? And these are things that don't really, in the same way a circle doesn't really exist in the real world, a note doesn't really exist. You know, E-flat doesn't really exist in the real world. It's kind of a theoretical construct. You can play an E-flat on a piano. You can play an E-flat on a tuba. You can play an E-flat on a violin, whatever you want to do. But this abstract idea of just like an E-flat in the abst- in the just in the ether, just like written on paper as a dot and a line, that's an abstract concept that you can then use to understand and manipulate this real world situation. So if you're a musician and you're playing along with other people, all you really need to know is what's the chord progression, what's the tempo and, you know, what's the time signature, whatever. And you can you can just jump in and play along. And so models are, are useful in that way. You know, physics is a model of the real world that allows you to take a very complicated situation like, I don't know, throwing a rock through the air and strip it down to, okay, let's say the rock is a point with a certain mass. Let's say that the rule, the the strength of gravity is this much. You basically just set certain rules in place and it allows you to to project the future forward to predict what's going to happen next and to sort of manipulate systems and create technology that's useful for everyday life. Yeah. And even though pure mathematicians um, don't claim to be interested in what happens in the real world. As a pure mathematician myself, I was delighted Mm. when one of my papers, all of a sudden I started getting requests from electrical engineers and it turned out that (laughs) it turned out that what I'd done abstractly had application and it wasn't 200 years later. So I I would have been dead and not know about it. That is really (laughs) lovely. Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of people, when you talk to mathematicians, they are adamant that what they're doing is not for, useful purposes but when you actually push them they're like you know what i'm advancing human knowledge forward and that can only help in some way or another yeah there's there's a classic uh classic example which i always like of uh george hardy who spent his time studying factorization felt it was totally useless but nonetheless it fascinated him and he didn't see any use for it and uh, fast forward to where we are now, and it's the basis of the RSA, yeah, yeah. RSA algorithm, which underlies all of cryptography nowadays. Anyway, exactly. Milo, this has been a fascinating discussion, and one uh, I always end uh, in podcasts by asking how listeners can get in touch with you, and if you have any interesting projects on the horizon. For sure, yeah. I, I am pretty. My my email is open. If you just Google my name, you can find my website. You can find my Twitter and my email and stuff. If you have any questions about this book, about anything else, please feel free to reach out. It might take me a little bit to get back to you, but when people reach out to me with interesting things to say, I, I like to respond. Um, also. There's a puzzle at the end of this book, or rather there's a puzzle hidden throughout the book. And at the very end of the book, it says, what is the answer to the puzzle? If anyone has figured out the answer to the puzzle, I would love <laughs> for them to get in touch with me. No one's no one's contacted me with the answer yet. So maybe I'll put out some kind of prize or something for that. Um, and in terms of next projects, I do have another long-term project in the works that I'm not, I haven't really talked about publicly, but I just got my master's degree in as a philosophical foundations of physics. And so I'm looking to move into some like science writing is kind of my next angle. To be honest with you, I've been completely dead productivity wise throughout this pandemic. It's really kind of made it hard to, to get anything on paper, but I'm really looking forward to getting back into sort of a writing space and being able to, to do more stuff after this. Uh, when you do, I hope you'll contact me. I will. Thanks so much for having me. I love all these questions. I love talking to a mathematician about this stuff. Okay. It's been a pleasure. Milo, thank you very much. Thanks, Jim.